Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Let me run a little thought experiment by you. All right, run it on by. All right, this one comes from Bruce Steinbrickner. I'm Bruce Steinbrickner. I'm professor of political science at DePaul University. He told me to imagine it's the first game in the World Series. And there's going to be, let's assume it's going to be the Yankees, which is often the case with respect to the American League. And let's assume they're going to be playing the Dodgers. So it's an old Yankees-Dodgers World Series. Ah, the old Yankee-Dodgers World Series. I don't think the Yankees organization, the New York Yankees, are going to hold a vote among all the Yankee fans in the country to decide who's going to be the starting pitcher for the first game. And they chose Nick. They chose you. That would be ludicrous. And yet, that is the analogy of what gets done in the presidential selection nomination process. I'm Nick Capodice, the worst pitcher in the world. I'm Hannah McCarthy, and I'm slightly better at it. And today on Civics 101 in our presidential election series, we're talking about primaries and caucuses. The elections before the elections. The unique way we choose nominees. Yes, it may be ludicrous for baseball, but in politics, it's called democracy. So first off, when you choose a candidate's name in a primary or a caucus you're not technically voting for that candidate. Well, when it comes to a primary process, you're actually voting for a delegate. I'm Domenico Montanaro. I'm senior political editor and correspondent at NPR. And those delegates, about 4,700 for the Democratic Party and 2,400 for the Republican Party, they go to the convention and that's where they pick the official nominee. And the person that the delegates vote for at the convention... It's who the public voted for. It's based on the public's vote, but they're actually not required to be fixed to the public vote. Some places do require some of them to be fixed. So if somebody and oftentimes they wind up being that way anyway, because the candidates submit a slate of delegates. In other words, they submit the names of the people who they would want to be at the convention for them. uh, And they do that to guarantee that those people don't wig out on them and, uh, you know, go in and voting for somebody else. Most of the delegates are called pledged delegates who will, on the first ballot at the convention, vote for the candidate that picked them. But the Democratic Party has this fun thing called superdelegates. There's about 700 of them. A superdelegate is an elected leader or party official who uh, gets a vote in this process. The Democratic National Committee has selected who those people would be. So if you're a member of Congress, uh, you're a senator or a governor, and also they have these uh, sort of higher level superdelegates who are former elected officials and dignitaries like former President Bill Clinton, for example. He would get a vote. Um, Jimmy Carter, he gets a vote. So the Republicans don't have superdelegates. They do not. Hannah, I know you're going to go into conventions in great detail in your episode, but just for a bare understanding, the delegates all vote at conventions. Whoever has a 51% majority gets the nomination. If there isn't a 51% majority, then they have to have a second ballot. The 2020 election is going to be the first time that superdelegates do not get to vote on that first ballot. Their votes, however, would count on a second ballot. That could make things very, very dicey and interesting when it comes to a floor fight at the convention, if it comes to that. Okay, that is what we're choosing in a primary or caucus. But what is the difference between the two? Okay, here's Bruce again. So your very question 
wants me to distinguish between caucuses and primaries as two different instruments in the nomination process, and it's fine. I can do that, and I will. But the bigger point is, by world standards, either caucuses, such as which occur in Nevada or Iowa, or primaries, which occur in New Hampshire and and, uh, California and New York, either of those is simply a remarkable political phenomenon. And he did explain the difference, but he wanted to make something very clear to me at first. Right. Uh, um, but don't, but don't, ignore, you, don't ignore, my friend, how unique I mean, either is. If you introduce the most restrictive caucus st- system that's used in the United States in one of these 10 states, if you move that to Britain or Canada or Japan or India, other functioning democracies, it would be a democratic revolution. Why? Because nobody else does it this way. Primaries have been proposed in some countries, and some positions around the world are subject to primaries, but not president or prime minister, and almost nobody else caucuses. So why do we? Is this just the way that we've always done it? No. (laughs) This is a relatively new phenomenon in America. The way things used to be, party elites selected our nominees for president. Yes, regular voters choose who's going to actually be president, but they couldn't choose who would be on the ballot in the first place. And at this time, we have to mention our old standby, the early part of the 20th century, the progressive era. And when we're talking progressive politics, you know where we're going, right, Hannah? Take me to the Badger State. You got it. Always with the Wisconsin. In Wisconsin in the early 1900s, corrupt party bosses where they were picking all the local candidates. And so reform-minded progressive politicians start to pass legislation that the people should have a say in the nominees. And as we know, states are laboratories of democracy. So Florida starts to have its first primary in 1901. Wisconsin has a primary in 1905. And by the 1960s, we got 14 states who have primaries. And while those primaries gave momentum and public support for candidates, by and large, the party still picked the nominee. But then we get to 1968. In 1968, the Democratic Party changed the rules. You know about this? You do know about this. I do know about this. What was going on in 1968? Um, Vietnam. Uh, (laughs) This is Lauren Shuljan. She's an NHPR reporter, and she's a co-host of the podcast Stranglehold. Democrats had nominated somebody who didn't perform as well in the primaries. That somebody who won the Democratic nomination was Hubert Humphrey, by the way. Humphrey did not win a single primary. He got 2% of the national primary vote. He had just focused his campaign on states that didn't have primaries, and he won the nomination. And of course, there were a lot of things. I mean, Robert Kennedy got killed during this time. I mean, there's a lot going on. Basically, what happened was, in after the 68 convention, Democrats were like, Party bosses have run this game for a long time. It was party bosses who, up until 68, chose the nominees. Even if they performed well in a primary, the party bosses could say, eh, you know, they do whatever they need to do. They, like, strong-arm people to make that happen. Well, in 68, as you may have known, uh, a lot of pro- people protested Chicago, the DNC in Chicago, because they were angry. They were angry with government. They were fed up. And protests were happening outside of the convention, but there was chaos inside. Uh, There was fighting amongst delegates. Dan Rather got punched in the stomach. 
And so the Democratic Party was like, okay, we cannot have middle-aged, middle-class white men determine who picks our nominee for president. The real people out there need to have more of a say. So that switch was huge. And and then the Republicans that would end up, the Republicans end up going along with this real change as well, I should say. And that is why we have people like Jimmy Carter. The 1976 Democratic nominee for president of the United States. Who had no clout, no connections to party bosses, was like hardly known by anybody. He was like just the governor of Georgia at this time. He like was involved a little bit in national politics, but not a lot. And Carter goes on to campaign like crazy in Iowa and New Hampshire. He sweeps them both in 1976 and becomes president. We went out early and not many people cared who I was. And he had to shake hands with everybody. I remember at Portsmouth Shipyard in New Hampshire, everybody that came by had to explain who I was and what I was running for and why I was there. And, and, uh, but they were good to me. All right, so... Primaries and caucuses have been around for a while, but they didn't really mean much until recently. Yeah. And now, the difference. Here's Bruce Steinbrickner again. Caucuses. Caucuses are different from primaries in that primaries are state government-run elections. The state government of New Hampshire runs the New Hampshire primary. The state government of California runs the California primary. Caucuses, Iowa, Nevada, those caucuses are run by the party organizations of the states. So they they are not official government elections. We have a primary here in New Hampshire. We do. We have a very special one, which we're going to get to. But how many states do primaries versus caucuses? Not only are the rules and methods different in every state, there's no federal law about primaries and caucuses. The rules can change every election. In 2016, 14% of pledged delegates came from caucuses, but in 2020, it's going to be around 5%. Why are states dropping caucusing? Because caucuses, frankly, take a lot more work than a primary for the party and for the voters. We're now down to only six states who do caucuses. You must, you just simply must look up how your state runs its primary caucus. Some states only let you vote in the caucus if you're registered as being affiliated with the party. Uh, Some states don't. Some states have same-day registration. Some states take you off the rolls if you haven't voted in a certain amount of years. You just got to look it up. I think I got it. Caucuses are run by parties in a state. Primaries by the state government. They both choose delegates for the convention, and every state is different. You got it. But what actually happens in a caucus? Ooh, okay. For this one, let's go to the first nomination contest in the country. Allow the Biden people, if you choose to, more time to find one more person. If the caucus says yes, then we allow more time. If the caucus... Something I didn't really anticipate or fully understand until I came up here was how fraught the process can be for some people. Like some Iowans really just don't like having to be yelled at when they're trying to vote. This is Kate Payne. She works for Iowa Public Radio and she's the co-host of the podcast Caucus Land. A caucus is not filling out a bubble in a voting booth. A caucus is held in a school or a library or a meeting hall all across the state. And they take hours. And big surprise, the Republicans and the Democrats do them completely differently. So for the Republicans, they use a secret ballot. Um, So sort of writing down a candidate's name on a piece of paper, tossing it into a hat kind of idea. 
Uh, so surrogates will get up, defend their candidate, folks write down their names. Democratic caucuses are where a lot of the back and forth and the political tug of war happens. Um, so if folks have seen, you know, those videos of dozens or hundreds of people yelling at each other in an Iowa gymnasium somewhere. And what are you doing to make sure that these Biden people come over to John Edwards? People I know, I'm going to talk to each one of them, convince them John Edwards is the right man for president. We're going to get him over here. Hillary Clinton supporters? Uh, yeah. Uh, what are you doing to make sure the Biden people come over to Hillary? Uh, kidnapping most of them. You know what? A lot of times chloroform and you knock them out, you can drag them over. That is a Democratic caucus. So at a Democratic caucus, the candidate's surrogates will get up, uh, defend their choice, and then it's up to all of those individuals in the room to then choose their candidate, physically stand, you know, in, in some corner of the room with their candidate's supporters. So they're standing in corners of the room. But how do they winnow down the field? So each candidate has to get at least 15% of all of the folks in the room. Uh, If they don't, then those supporters have to realign. They have to choose a different candidate. And Kate told me that is the beauty and the horror of the Democratic caucus. You're not hiding behind a secret ballot. You're taking a literal stand. Individual Iowans defending their choice uh, to other supporters, sometimes their you know, family, friends, and neighbors, defending their choice and trying to get other people to come over to their side. Uh, so that's that back and forth, um, hashing out argumentation about which candidate is better prepared, what are their policies. Really, it's... That interaction that is essential to the caucuses. And then, eight days later, we drive into our own home state for the New Hampshire primary, which according to the state law of New Hampshire is, quote, the first contest of its kind, end quote. This is what Stranglehold, the show that Lauren hosts with Jack Rodolico, this is their rockin' theme song, by the way, is all about. New Hampshire being first in the nation. FITN is like a hashtag and a lifestyle around here for like the political class. If you live in New Hampshire, you can physically shake the hand of just about every single presidential candidate because the New Hampshire primary gets so much press. Now, this seems crazy, but New Hampshire has a very low number of delegates, so it should not rationally get the amount of coverage and media presence that it gets for its contest. Because in the grand scheme of things, the amount of delegates that are coming from New Hampshire versus the amount of delegates in California or Texas, it's like not even comparable. However, because we are first, Iowa's the first caucus, but because we are the first primary, Iowa and New Hampshire get an incredible amount of media attention that then makes it seem like they get all this momentum going into the rest of them. And it makes it seem like we are much more important than many of the other states because it's the first real chance that candidates are going in front of real voters. And it's the first time we as Americans are seeing, oh, this is what our neighbors in these states are thinking. But the reason why New Hampshire is like, yeah, we're first too, even though Iowa's the first contest, is because we're the first time people are actually going into a voting booth and making a a choice. Okay, so now I have to ask, I know Iowa and New Hampshire are first, but what does that actually affect, you know? Like, how often does it determine the nominee? Since about 1960, New Hampshire has picked the nominee for the Republicans in all but three elections. 
Democrats much less often. But Lauren told me that a win in New Hampshire or in Iowa can be a fast track to the White House. And she gave me the example of Bernie Sanders in 2016, who won in New Hampshire. And without that win, he might not have lasted as long as he did in that campaign. And this is all because we are first. Ah, yes, the first mover advantage. This is Alvin Tillery. He's a political science professor at Northwestern University. So they are they are the first two states in the in the nominating system, and they have uh, a ton of uh, power to shape the way in which subsequent states uh, uh, consider who's a viable candidate, and so that's why they're so important. Some people say that the dilemma with Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, is that their populations, you know, don't mirror the the nation. And when Alvin says mirror the nation, he's referencing the fact that Iowa is the sixth whitest state in the union. New Hampshire is the fourth. And while the United States is about 60% white, those two states are about 90%. Which brings us to this question. If you lose in... Iowa and New Hampshire, I don't know, for racial or gender reasons, will the national media proclaim you a loser before you get to a place like South Carolina or California, where you're much more likely to find uh, support? And so, you know, there's been a debate about whether or not those two states should remain, should keep their, their, their order. So why do we keep doing it this way? Why can't we have a national vote? That's exactly what I asked Lauren. Because New Hampshire and Iowa won't give it up, dude. Honestly, but like... Can't you just... Can't can't everyone agree that this is not truly a democratic problem? No, they can't agree. Because I just... What I just explained to you. They, like, new, people in New Hampshire, like, who want to be first? Iowa people who want to be first? They don't want that. You know why they don't want that, for the most part? is because a lot of people believe the nationalized primary then just becomes a TV primary. Then you don't have to, as a candidate, go and face voters, you know, one-on-one and be like, what's your question about? Like, what's your big issue? Like, oh, it's healthcare. Let me give you my plan. Oh, you want Medicare for all? Well, here's why I do or don't believe in that. Or like, you don't like Obamacare? Well, neither do I. Like those, you know, they're not, this is per the argument of these people who believe that a national primary would be bad. Their argument is like, then it's not real. Then it's not. Then the real people don't really have as much power because then this campaign is going to be held in, you know, airports where they're like, I'm here in in Nevada, but I'm not really. I'm just like stepping off an airplane and I'm going to fly somewhere else. Or it's it's campaign is done in commercials, Um, you know, and then it becomes a cost thing. And then, you know, somebody who can't raise a lot of money doesn't even have a shop because they can't pay for the major ad markets in California or whatever. I can't forget Bruce's insistence that this is the most small D Democratic nominating process in the world. But it seems like New Hampshire and Iowa just have a lot of power. Has anyone floated potential alternatives to this? A few things have been floated. Uh, like everybody has the primary on the same day, but also maybe doing a rotating first-in-the-nation primary. So like every four years, there's a different set of states that goes first. And while that doesn't have a ton of momentum to change right now, there are some things changing about how we do primaries and caucuses. We can just opt to not do them at all. That's President Trump discussing his Republican challengers for president just moments ago. Several states are canceling their GOP primary elections, and Kansas is one of them. And while the president says he had nothing to do with that... As of this moment, four states have canceled their GOP primaries. There's probably more to come. 
all those delegates will automatically be pledged to Donald Trump. And this isn't unprecedented. In 2012, the DNC canceled 12 primaries during Barack Obama's re-election. But one difference is that in 2012, there weren't any serious, significant challengers to Obama. And Domenico Montanaro said that this year, there are. And that's a big reason why they're canceling primaries. They don't want to embarrass President Trump if there winds up being a significant chunk of the vote that goes to somebody else, like a Mark Sanford, the former governor of South Carolina. Uh, they don't want to have that kind of embarrassment, that media storyline, and eventually, potentially, hurt the president's chances of re-election. Before we go, Brady Carlson, author of the fantastic book, Dead Presidents, is going to take us through one of his favorite presidential elections in U.S. history. What do we got today, Brady? Today, we're looking at the election of 1820, which, at least on its face, was one of the most predictable and least suspenseful elections in American history. Here's the short version. James Monroe runs for re-election unopposed and wins. Nobody... Nobody opposed him. Just one candidate on the ballot. Just that one. Just, <laughs> they're not, you got to put somebody up there, you know? Yeah, just for appearances, you'd think, right? But this seemingly dull rubber stamp of an election actually has a lot more to it than it seems at first glance. So when I was reading president books as a kid, the way I understood 1820 was that James Monroe was just so popular that the country began what is sometimes called the era of good feelings. And so they reelected him nearly unanimously in the Electoral College, nearly unanimously because one elector cast his vote elsewhere so that George Washington could have the singular honor of being the only president elected unanimously. Here's, though, how it actually played out. James Monroe was president at a time when the early American political parties were dying out. There were the Federalists who wanted a stronger federal government, like the second president John Adams and Alexander Hamilton of musical fame. They were opposed by the anti-Federalists, who were mostly also called Republicans in their time and are known best today as Democratic Republicans. Terrible branding, first of all. Yeah, agreed. I, I know generally where Democrats and Republicans stand on issues, specifically social issues today, but what were those two big parties about? Well, very broadly, the Federalists were mostly based in the North. They represented industry and cities, and they wanted stronger ties with England. The anti-Federalist Republicans were more Southern, more rural. They wanted closer ties to France instead of England, and they were much more skeptical of the federal government. The key here was that the anti-Federalists had support in the most important state in the country, Virginia. In the first 36 years of the U.S. presidency, a non-Virginian was president for only four years. There were three Virginia presidents elected back-to-back. -back. They were called the Virginia Dynasty, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. The Republican Party was growing and growing. The Federalists were declining to the point that by 1820, there wasn't enough of a party left to even field a presidential candidate. So when the Electoral College met, nearly all the votes went to the only guy in the race. And in Massachusetts, one of the electors who voted for Monroe was John Adams, one of the original leaders of that opposition Federalist Party. I did not know that former presidents could be electors. Stubborn old John Adams cast his ballot for the opposition party? Will someone shut that man up? Never! And you see why there's this idea that this was the era of good feelings. But was it? 
I mean, 1820 was the year without a contested election, but it was also the year Congress had to engineer what was called the Great Compromise to head off this growing regional tension about slavery and whether or not to expand slavery as the country was expanding. And even in the very lopsided Electoral College count, there was a hint of opposition or dissatisfaction in the air. There was the faithless elector from New Hampshire called William Plumer, a former U.S. senator and governor, and later he would be a founder of the New Hampshire Historical Society. Well, he had reservations about casting his vote for Monroe, but it wasn't because he wanted George Washington to be the only president elected unanimously. That story I'd read was not true. He wasn't a huge fan of the Monroe administration, and while he knew he wasn't going to change the outcome of the election on his own, he thought he had a plan to make his protest vote count. So let me have it. Who did he cast his protest vote for? He voted for John Quincy Adams, who was Monroe's Secretary of State, and his thinking was, this is a guy who someday should be president, so he was kind of floating Adams' name to the political class kind of hinting about who they should back in the next election in 1824. And as it turned out, much of the political class did get behind Adams in that election. But by then, the idea of having a bunch of powerful elites choosing each successive president for the rest of the country was not very popular. And there was a war hero and aspiring president out there called Andrew Jackson, who decided to launch his own populist movement to stand against the political classes. He eventually and very pointedly named that movement the Democratic Party. So this extremely boring election with only one candidate and one political party essentially leads to a complete new era of U.S. politics. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of e pluribus unum, you know, out of many, one. In this case, it was out of one, many. Brady, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Brady Carlson, author, host of All Things Considered on Wisconsin Public Radio. That'll just about do it for today. We'll keep coming out every two weeks as long as you keep listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thanks, Hannah. Oh, you're welcome, Nick. Our staff includes Ben Henry and Jackie Fulton. Erica Janik is our executive producer. And reminder that it's pronounced Nevada, not Nevada. Maureen McMurray has no delegates, but she gets a lot of media attention. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Chris Sabrisky, Audio Hertz, Maiden, Lee Rosevier, The Grand Affair, and Junior 85. And we say it once, but we'll say it again. If you're a teacher and you ever want to use any of our shows in your classroom, drop us a line. Visit us at civics101podcast.org slash info for various and sundry supports. Civics 101 is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR. Nevada, not Nevada. Or is it Nevada, not Nevada? Nevada, not Nevada. Is it Nevada or Nevada? Nevada. How? Why does everyone say Nevada? Every... Everyone who lives on this coast, you mean? <laughs> in Nevada. 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 It's, it's not Nevada. Nevada. It's not Nevada. It's Nevada. Nevada. That's what she said. Oh, she is the name, and it's Erica Janik. <laughs> <laughs>